This interview was one of the earliest I recorded. It was recorded on the 19th of April 2011. That's why the politics may seem a little bit dated. It's like time travel. This is what we were thinking about the world last April. I grew up in a family of teachers or had been teachers, would be teachers. And I felt quite strongly about not being a teacher. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with my sister. Hello, Rebecca. Hi, Dave. When did we first meet? I think you were quite young at the time. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I have no vivid memory of the first time I saw you, but then I think I had been sent some photographs, so I had a fairly good idea of what you looked like as a baby. Um, And you changed quite quickly anyway. Because Rebecca's my older sister, half-sister, I guess, from my dad's first marriage. So that's when we met when I was when I was a baby. What do you do now? What do I do? I'm a part-time English language trainer. Right. In Germany. In Germany. And that's where we are now, for people who want to sort of sense. We're in uh, in Germany, in, uh, is it, we're in Bonn, aren't we? Yeah, we're near we're in Bad Godesberg in Bonn. Bad, Bad Godesberg, I think that's a great name for it's a, a band. It's a lovely name. <laughs> Bad Godesberg. We've got a few things on the list to talk about. We're sitting up quite late, late at night drinking Horlicks. So yeah, I mean, one, one thing, that I guess the obvious thing, the most obvious thing to talk to you about is the differences between Germany and the UK, because you've been living here for quite a few years. 16 years. 16, 16 years God. this month. And it doesn't seem like so long, in a way, but it's... A large portion of my life, a large portion of my adult life, I suppose, half my adult life, really, that I've lived here. And I think, before I talk about the differences, I have to say that I feel quite detached from the UK now. When I go back there, it's a very familiar place, but it's not somewhere I have a kind of direct connection to anymore. It's not the country that I left 16 years ago, it's changed a lot. So while it feels very nice and familiar, I don't feel I really know what's going on there, apart from what I read in the news. And if all you get from a country is what you read in the news and some conversations with friends and family, Mm. you don't get the the full picture. So it's always a bit of a surprise. The difference is... I suppose there's more similarities than differences, but one of the things is that living here... I feel I'm part of a really international community. That's part of the characteristics of Bonn, um, that there are, even though the embassies have left, there's still a lot of people from all over the world. I'm teaching English as well. I have colleagues who are from Ireland or South Africa or Australia or New Zealand. All we have in common, I suppose, is, is the language. So in some ways, I think... I have very relatively few English friends, quite a lot of English-speaking friends. So to compare isn't really to compare like for like. So, but you, In terms of the life, I think I'm not living 
an integrated life with Germans because mm. it's such an international community. So do you yeah. feel there's sort of a similar detachment from Germany? I mean, you, you, you no, I live, I live here. I live here. I I've been here long enough that it's 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 where I live. Um, I'm not really sure what the kind of the meaning of home is in this context. It's a conversation I have with a lot of my friends who've lived in Germany for some years now about where home is because I think a lot of us feel we've we've lost that completely in some ways. But the difference is, what do I say? I mean, we get up earlier in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I think... We don't. We, you can't find a shop open on a Sunday. These things you you notice at first, and then you just get used to them. There are rules of culture and social behaviour which you struggle with a bit at first, and then you either just accept them or you live around them. You you accept yeah. them on some level or another. You know that you shouldn't make a noise cutting your lawn on a Sunday, and you shouldn't wash his car in the street, and you. You kind of work out, well, can I get away with it today? Yes, I'm going to be daring and I'll do it. But generally, I don't think it's such a different place to the UK in many ways. Is there a difference in kind of manners? And I always sort of make a joke that the only word you need to know as an English person is insurdigan, which means excuse me and sorry. It's Um, quite a general purpose word, yeah. but, but, Um, But do Germans have the same kind of rules of engagement socially, I guess? Not quite. Not quite. I was having a conversation with one of my groups last week and I, after quite a lot of discussion, I said, OK, what are the rules that you would give somebody before they come and do business in Germany? Mm. And they were kind of coming up with things like be punctual, be friendly, yeah. <laughs> don't come in unprepared to a meeting and expect to wing it. we quite like you to know what you're talking about. But they weren't, they're not kind of exceptionally different no, they to what so it, much it's it's more a difference in emphasis i think but the insurgent thing makes me laugh because it's in some ways it reflects the british culture and the sort of the way that sorry is a sorry, very yeah. all-purpose word and the way that the british kind of apologize as a, a social lubricant in a way and you don't get apologies here germans don't say sorry and once you realize they're not going to say sorry and stop expecting it <laughs> you feel a lot happier <laughs> because as long as you're thinking well why didn't say sorry you know what's wrong going wrong here I mean one of the things I think that really kind of really shook me when I the first time I went to a concert in Germany at the end when the Germans want you to play an encore they don't just shout encore 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 they shout it together in unison stamping their feet and it feels like you're in kind of like a Nuremberg rally or something it's quite scary (laughs) the first time you're you're there in this crowd and then you realize that all they're doing is shouting for an encore (laughs) I mean, I guess it's we're, it's quite a similar kind of country, and I mean they're both European Western cultures. Germany's a bit bigger in terms of its size and its power. Do you think? Do you think it's got more political power as a country? It's I think it's more pro-European. It's it's kind of got into the euro. Yeah. And there's a lot of debate at the time that it went into the euro, but having got into it, it's it's committed to it. I mean, I personally think it's I like the euro. I like not having to change my money four times. Yeah, I, bet. I like the openness that Europe has now. I mean, in, I guess it's happened within my lifetime that every, the borders have opened up and you can cross easier with a European passport. But it's also, I suppose. I think when I first moved here 16 years ago, the difference between East and West was still quite apparent in terms of attitudes, and I think that maybe has relaxed a bit, because it's it's not so recent. 
Yeah, I mean, 16 years is a generation, isn't mm-hmm. it? I mean, there's a new, new lot of people coming out now. You've schooled your children in Germany. Do you think that the education system here is... It's had its ups and downs and they've been to different schools. I think there's some really positive aspects to it. The general British complaint is they come home at lunchtime, how do they possibly get enough done? But they do get enough done because they start early and what they, the time they spend there, they spend on lessons, they bring homework home. What time do they start? They start at s- Well, um, 7.30 or 8 o'clock usually. 7.30, It's incredibly early. And I'm not sure that you learn best at that time of the morning, but... But they finish at one or two or something? Yeah, they finish at one or two and then a couple of hours homework in the afternoon. It's not that different to a British school day, no, really. No. And there are options now in schools, certainly in primary schools, to stay on and do other activities in the afternoon because it, I think, was a, it was tough on parents having the kids finishing so early. Yeah, in a sort of the modern working world, mm, certainly. Definitely. What else can I say about German schools? It's interesting. You see them sort of wandering off to school in the morning on their own with rucksacks heavily laden with books. You don't keep much stuff at school. You bring all your homework home and take it all in again. I mean, they walk to school, don't they, generally oh, speaking? kids go out at the age of six walking to school. It seems very young. It depends how close you live to the school, but a lot of parents do let their kids, right from the word go, mm. walk on their own. Very early in the morning, in the winter, in the dark... <laughs> Yeah. Or cycling to school, that's also quite popular. Yeah. Generally, people get around much more on bicycles here. Do you think kids have a bit more freedom here than the UK? Independence, I wouldn't say freedom. Okay. What's the. I mean, in some. Well, in some ways, there's, there's, there's rules about how late kids can stay out up until the age of. I think it's 18, certainly. Yeah, I think up to the age of 15 they have to be home by 10 o'clock unless they're accompanied by an adult. And then I think it's, I forget now, you'd have to look it up, but there's a rule before you, when you're 18 you have to be home by 1 o'clock. Given, you have to put it in context that if you go out drinking, a bar can stay open as long as there's customers there. Yeah. But the under-18s or the under-whatevers have to be sent home right. and can't stay out all night. Okay. And if, you, if, for example, if two 15-year-olds want to go to the cinema or two 40-year-olds want to go to the cinema and the film finishes after 10 o'clock, then they have to take an adult with them. Okay. It, in some ways, it can be quite restrictive. Yeah, I guess that is quite restrictive, potentially. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, I guess these, it all depends on the individual child and the what they want sort of thing, how restrictive these rules kind of prove to be in practice, I guess. It's done in the spirit of, of protection. Yeah. Generally speaking, all, all the rules we make to govern children, in theory, are, are done with their best interests in, at heart. Mm. Whether they actually are achieving those best interests, it depends on the rule, I guess. But hopefully adults made the right rules for kids. <laughs> I guess we all try. When you go back to the UK now, what do you think about the UK? I mean, if, if you sort um, of are now an observer in your own country... Beer you... seems to be terribly expensive. I think people get irritated when I generally comment on the price inflation in the UK because I, I say things like, oh, my gosh, is how much it costs now? That's ridiculous. If I go shopping, I notice the kind of the marketing of products is a bit more intense. You go into a supermarket and the, there's all kinds of 
special offers to get you to buy more and, and stuff like that. Maybe it's a level of sophistication that isn't present in the German supermarkets or maybe it just is something else about aggressive selling, I don't know. I would say that I'm very confused now by the railways in England because I remember when you could just buy a ticket to go from one end of the country to the other and it was a fairly straightforward procedure. And now it's changed. Now it seems terribly complicated. I'm not sure I, I'm not sure I go back to the UK often enough to make a really clear good judgment about these things. I guess. Because if you only go back for a couple of weeks a year and you more or less go back to the same places, I don't think you I don't only, think I really get a places change. You don't see how the culture in general has changed, I guess. I don't watch much UK TV. I tend to sort of watch series that have been recommended rather yeah. than the stuff that's on in between. Well, in I think way, that's, if, you, if, is, if you judge any culture by the recommended uh, TV, you get a, a much better probably... I think it is a bit selective, yeah. yeah. I watch TV here, but I think that the, the, the kind of style of programme making is quite different. And the most popular TV shows here seem to be, well, maybe it's not that different, the sort of the talent show type things and the, the, the reality TV I think, and so I think on. That is similar. That is but what similar I don't, I don't think there's the sort of some, necessarily the sun, some of the other stuff that we have in on UK TV. So a lot of it gets translated and dubbed. You suddenly switch the TV on and think, hang on a minute, I know that series. What is it? I've and seen it before. Notice that their mouths are moving slightly exactly, different. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there isn't that much difference. I guess is the my friend who has moved to Germany, mm. been here for less time, and I think he feels the differences much more keenly. And I know he felt them really keenly in the first year of him coming here. But I guess over time, you know, you get used to things. In some ways, I think we just... In some ways, we live as an English household here. We don't necessarily, within the house, have any kind of different life. Well, you speak English to each other. To the way that we would in England. Except that we watch less TV, I think. We consciously didn't put a satellite dish up and get the BBC channels and those sort of things. But now I can get Radio 4. I mean, for years I had to drive to the top of a hill and, and put the car onto Longwave. But now I can get the, the radio on the laptop, the digital radio. And at first I thought, this is great. And I listened to Radio 4 for about two weeks, you know, had it on in the background. And I thought, well, did I ever listen to Radio 4 that much before? <laughs> <laughs> Do I really need to listen to, to it when I wake up in the morning? And yeah. so I guess it's got the politics yeah. of it. That's, I mean, I guess that's one thing that you can rely on Radio 4's... I don't listen to it, but you can... A lot of people rely on the Today programme, don't they, to, to find out yeah. what's going on. I mean, on. I follow UK politics, but I mean, I've been here so long and now I don't have a vote anymore, so it all seems <laughs> a little bit um, kind of abstract and detached, and I'm, I feel I'm watching it from outside. Quite glad that I'm outside of it. Yes, at the moment, it's fascinating in some ways, I think, because I don't think that the UK is really used to any kind of coalition or the sort of consensus that needs to take place. Because you've got a coalition. Yeah, we've had coalitions for years, and the, but there's a kind of a, a, a tradition of, of consensus decision making and, and working together that that's, uh, I think, probably quite new in British politics. So I. I'm not going to make any predictions about how long it will last, but I, I wouldn't... 
<laughs> I won't be surprised whatever happens really in a, in a way I think it it seems to me that if you sort of you can compare that when we had 24-hour licensing came in in the UK mm. the culture wasn't there for it to be like the continent mm. and so it was just more people binge drinking for longer and you can sort of say we have no we're not used to co- coalitions so it hasn't we haven't necessarily formed a they haven't at the moment mm. formed one that's doing the sorts of things that the German coalitions have to do it's much more kind of just you know one party is it ruling like- it and the other one's doing what it's told which is that what happens here or is that different from I mean what's different about the coalitions here do they is it actually getting on or is it still just one party in charge I think the one you have in the UK is unusual because I think that the coalition agreement was hammered out but the party members don't necessarily feel obliged to follow it mm. I think when parties go into coalition talks and they have experience of working in coalitions, then they go into negotiations knowing which of their policies they want to have. Mm. And one of the things that is really different was that everybody thought it, it was terrible. It took five days to get an outcome from the election. Here, it's, it's normally about three weeks at least mm. because it's a very detailed process. Well, and so I think what actually comes out of it... Is, is something that has much more understanding and, and, and confidence from the parties involved. It's not a hastily put together package, which is what you have yeah. in the UK, there which is why I think it, it's going to fracture in places, because they felt the time pressure and the, the process, I think certainly where the Lib Dems had to take it back to the party, was kind of done retrospectively. Yeah, that's... That's fair, I think. And I think if, you, if you're going to be serious about coalition politics, you need to have time to really work out those agreements and well, do the, justice to I think it. The sense at the time was that if we don't do it quick, then we're going to somehow have a worse economic cl- crash. That was what was used to hit people with. It's like the economy will suffer. The if... whole campaign was about fear yeah. <laughs> in many ways. <laughs> Vote for us because it's really scary to vote for someone else is not a very positive message to be putting. No, that's that's true. <laughs> that was, I mean, that was, yeah, the way it, the way it played out in my feeling. Although there was a kind of hopeful little bit with Clegg, and the, the, <laughs> that was all sort of spun in a certain way that I, I personally got a bit taken in with the whole kind of hope for some something hasn't seemed to have happened. We were talking earlier on about your strange career from someone who didn't want to be a teacher to someone who is a teacher. I didn't want to be a teacher because I grew up in a family of teachers or had been teachers, would be teachers. And I felt quite strongly about not being a teacher. I studied psychology without a clear plan of where I was going to go. Why didn't you want to be a teacher? I think... I probably had spent time in schools <laughs> as as everybody does, but also maybe because I, I had a different school holiday schedule to, to my mother, I also spent time in her classroom too. I think I was genuinely curious about what else was out there in the world, that, that there must be more to the world mm. than schools. And I studied psychology, which was... Kind of mostly, although, you know, parts of it were developmental psychology, there was also quite a lot about working with adults, uh, which 
which maybe interested me more at the time. I truthfully studied psychology because I thought it would hold my attention for three years, and it did. It was the right choice. Spent a year as a student union officer, which was a kind of exciting thing to be doing, although it was it was actually very exhausting. I'm not sure I really had time to to stop and think about what I was doing most of the time because I was really trying to hold so many different strands of a job together on my own. I was a welfare officer and, and it was a huge responsibility to have in some respects, a very kind of nebulous job description that didn't exist. But a really, I think in terms of experience, a really a really good year to have spent. What does a welfare officer well, do? Well, yeah, exactly. What, did, what, what we did then probably wouldn't happen now because we used to spend an awful lot of time at the beginning of term chasing up late grant checks. And now grant checks don't exist. <laughs> that yeah. whole part of the job of, of trying to get the student has known some money. <laughs> it doesn't have to really, you know, it doesn't come through that route anyway. But it was a mixture of, of practical stuff, dealing with people who had enormous crises in their lives. It was offering a safe place where people could come and talk to someone in the student union who was not going to go to the polytechnic with anything unless they wanted it and to. And you were more or people less had, their age as well. Yeah, so I guess yeah. Um, but it was a mixture of personal stuff, academic stuff, people who were suddenly realising they'd got onto the wrong course. It was quite a common one, I think, and trying to help them find their way out of that. All sorts of, of different different things, really different things, stuff that was to do with young people. We had a huge, big box of, of free condoms in the corner of the room, and on a Friday afternoon, most of the, the job was about dispensing those. But it, it was yeah, a mixture of practical and, and, I suppose, want of a better word, impromptu counselling, really. And legal problems and, and things like that, we, we just sorted people out with the right appointment, with the right person. And you went from there, you did, so you did that for a year? I did that for a year. I then went and worked in a probation hostel. By then I had a, a social work training in mind because I, I realised that I wasn't really going to get any further unless I had a qualification. A degree in psychology wasn't a qualification, so... I went and worked in a probation hostel and then I did a fantastic job with the Young Offender Project, which again, was, was, was a year was enough because it was so incredibly exhausting and tiring, but really... Rewarding. Yeah, and learning things and doing things that I wouldn't have done otherwise. But that was enough experience to then get me sponsorship from the Home Office to go and train to be a probation officer, which again is no longer... An option for anybody, <laughs> but it was it was a it was a good thing to do at the time, and it was a good thing to have. So, without obviously going into any personal cases, mm. what 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 do you think you learned from the that year doing the young offenders? I learned that I could put up with more cold weather than I ever thought I could before. We spent a lot of time going out doing outdoor activities of a fairly challenging nature, canoeing in the sea and <laughs> dangling off ropes. And <laughs> Uh, all through the year not just in the nice weather I hastened to it there was one night we slept I think it was November we slept in a mine shaft in South Wales and it it really was like the Flintstones because we just had our sleeping mats on on rocks (laughs) and the sea came right into the the, the front of the cave so we we weren't going to leave till the morning (laughs) but it was no it it was interesting doing the group work program with with quite young under 21 so all quite young lads who had all either done a bit of prison or very close to doing a bit of prison they really were at the point where they had to make serious choices otherwise their lives were probably going to be 
disrupted for a very long time by being locked up. So there was a lot counting on it wow, for everybody. Yeah, really and important moment in there, no? Yeah, but it was also, it kind of, maybe the nature of the project also attracted the most adventurous probation officers, I think. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I, I did learn a huge amount about about working with youngsters when I did that project. And we had, I mean, we had some really, really interesting, valuable times, I think. I don't think anybody who did that project forgets it. It, it was, yeah, it, it had a, a, an impact I think yeah. not with this necessarily the, the impact we hope, but it certainly had a it had some impact. So you went from there to being a probation. Then I went. So. Then I went as a, as a probation student to Oxford. Um, and you studied at, at Oxford. I studied at Oxford on the social work course, which is a kind of a bit of a weird situation to, to be in. It's not what people think about when they think, "Oh, you went to Oxford <laughs> University." It was an academic course. It was demanding. Yeah. I spent an awful lot of time in the library. And in that sense, it was very typical of what you should well, expect yeah. from Oxford University. I mean, I'm not saying um, it was a lesser degree. I just mean it's it not was, what people assume. But it was an odd mixture because when we weren't, when I wasn't studying hard, I was, I was out on social work placements. I mean, to be fair, I was at a graduate college. So most of the students at the college were either studying the second part of the medical training. So they were kind of doing the practical part in the hospital or they were doing social work, or they were doing research towards doctorates and so on. It wasn't a lot of young, privileged 18-year-olds mm. who'd kind of come straight out of public school. That wasn't the case at all. But you will have been in the very privileged buildings, to sort of with all of the richness. Because I, I, mean, I remember seeing your graduation, and I don't remember Oh, the much graduation, yeah, and some of the library buildings were fantastic as well. Our department was pretty modest, really, and Green College was also at that stage fairly small and it had a couple of old buildings and it had been turned into a college from some other buildings and added to but did you but it did, I mean it was fantastic in terms of the facilities yeah we had a, we had a snooker table and we had um, and you were going from there though weren't you did you experience a kind of because my right, writing brain goes, mm. oh, here's a great story about this contrast between this kind of wealth and kind of very severe poverty, I guess, sometimes in terms yeah, of There were occasions when you could have a... I mean, I remember the first week or the second week I was there, we were sent out on an observation placement and we were sent out mostly in pairs. So we, we had someone to sort of chat through what we were doing and spent a morning going around the Cowley estate in Oxford with a social worker visiting families and then the afternoon sitting in an office doing very little because it was observation. We weren't really given any tasks to do and then in the evening we caught the bus, I mean the afternoon we caught the bus back in the evening we went to dinner in college, mm. you know, in this sort of three-course meal with, with silver cutlery and, and it, it was a it did feel like an odd contrast but I can't say there were many occasions that were as, extre- as extreme as that and it was only I think because it was the first week we we really noticed it if there was a difficult kind of contrast or, or, or a, a, a bridge to be crossed it was more for me between the very academic study of social policy and the criminal justice system and the actual practice mm. of going out and doing the job and I think that trying to sort of close these strands together mm. 
and it had to be done because we had to write exams at the end. I mean, to be fair, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that wasn't it wasn't just a thing you had to do for yourself. You had to somehow knit these things together. And wasn't it also for somebody I mean, else as well? For social work to be taken seriously as a profession, that there was the need for the there to be a more kind of academic. I'm not sure social work is taken seriously. No. I'm not sure it was then. Probably isn't. But I think... We, but before um, this sort of academic angle, well, mum, mum who was also a social, was a social think, worker, she always says that they needed more academic th- proof that they were a profession. But she may... That was her opinion. It might not be yours. I don't know when I... When I actually... When I was working, whether it really made much difference at all, having done... A more academic training because the Oxford course was more academic and, and it was a master's course and it, it it was theoretically it was a route into management but when I joined the probation service it wasn't my aim to go into management mm-hmm. and in fact if you if you look at the structure as it was then and I don't know if it's much different now but it was a very very flat pyramid the vast majority of staff were the main grade probation officers one of the nice things about it was that you you could move around at that grade and do a whole lot of different things the downside was that you could be moved and do things <laughs> it wasn't a job where a grade meant you did the same job while you were in that grade at all right. and so in some ways I don't think that people understood you know magistrates seemed to be quite surprised to hear that we'd had that length of training I don't think it was necessarily widely known I see to yeah. the people who ought to have known. Now the training to be a probation officer has been reduced to two years. And whether that makes a difference in terms of the everyday task, I don't know, because it's it's fine having the academic background, but if you're restricted in what you can do... Because you've got to follow the framework. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because the framework is so clearly set out and so restrictive. And you and so, don't really make the laws yeah, or yeah. the policy, well, do you? Well, no, I think it was... It was a very interesting course of study, but how much it impacted on my practice as a probation officer, I'm not sure, because I think most of it I learned actually on placement, doing the job, yeah. and the rest was, yeah, it, it, was, it was valuable, it was interesting, but I, and unless you've actually reached the point where you influence policy, mm. I'm not sure the academic background is very helpful. If anything, it just made me more angry. Because you, because you knew stuff that you couldn't, you couldn't put into. Well, what I could. Doing. I think more because I could see that the some of the, the by the time I left, I could see that a lot of the stuff that was coming down into our practice, and they weren't they weren't kind of recommendations; they were must dos. Um, I, I felt the whole the basis upon what upon what a lot of these policy decisions were being made wasn't influenced by anything academic. The research wasn't influencing the practice. Okay. And the more you know about the research, you can, the more you can see the practice or the recommendations or the, the procedures are, are deviating from what the research think, suggests you, you should be doing. Right. Um, the more angry you become, I think. And yeah. um, in, in some ways, that, that was where I kind of... That was where I was when I left the probation service. I felt that the... The job I'd been trained for had become impossible because I would. There was such a, a demand to do other tasks, other than than contact with the clients. Yeah. And it wasn't the job I'd been trained for. If anything, that yeah. I think was maybe the root of my frustration. Really, that and the, some other elements of the the workload, yeah. <laughs> the responsibility, big, the. Big and, and so on. So that's, yeah, how I came to be a probation officer and how I left, really. Yeah. 
<laughs> without the bit in the middle. Yeah. The last year I was probation officer, I was seconded half-time into an alcohol and drugs team, and I think at that time I was thinking maybe there would be more opportunity to do proper social work mm. if I went into the substance abuse area. But then the opportunity to come to Germany arose. So what, I, in fact, I did was I wandered off Tuesday evenings for a while and did a TEFL course, got a TEFL qualification and came here and started training people to speak English. And the intention was only to come for a few years and I thought that would keep me busy for a few years, but I enjoyed it. Mm. Yeah, so that that's really how I got to be a teacher. Um, or, or an adult trainer, but yes, I am a teacher. So do you think that you're, you're I guess, teenage? Because, I, I mean... Obviously, I come from the same family as you, which is rare, probably rare in this interview in this interview series. Well, I think Hopefully. with the generational difference, it doesn't necessarily make True. such an obvious connection. But, yeah. And I, I've also sort of got that same thing about I don't want to be a teacher. Our brother's mm. a teacher. Our sister's a teacher. Dad was a teacher for a while in primary school. Your mum was a teacher. My mum was a social worker, but I guess it's still in that sort of remit. That's my big fear. Now I'm working with that children in nurseries, so I'm quite close now. Do you think that, you know, you're now you're teaching, you're teaching adults, though, not I'm children. teaching adults and I'm a trainer, so I don't have, often I don't have to teach the language because people have learned the language at school, but they need to use it and they've forgotten it or they need to learn some special mm. vocabulary for their job or they actually learnt it at school but they never really practice speaking it very much and they're terrified of making phone calls. These sort of things I think often it's about it's about developing skills. Having gone through the thing of learning German as an adult, I really do understand how difficult it is once you've left school, particularly I think with languages mm. because well, the investment, the investment of time you have to put into learning a language is quite high, maybe compared to other things. Mm. In some ways, it's not like teaching where you actually have to present a lot of new information and enable people to understand it. And it is learning by doing. It's a lot, a lot more about creating activities which will enable people to so, use the skills what they have most effectively or make good use of the language and then just adding the little bits that are missing mm. so in becoming like. in becoming a teacher you haven't actually sort of become the, the sort of teacher that you kind of I was trained to be a TEFL to be. I was trained to be a TEFL teacher yeah. but I, I, I didn't take the kind of the TEFL route of teaching a lot of language students a fixed curriculum if you like at all and I've never ever worked for the language schools that require you to work through the book and the fixed curriculum I've always tried to be creative and maybe this is something I did learn when I was in social work the first thing you do is find out what people really need (laughs) find out what their issues really are Talk to them about, you know, what, what, why have you booked language lessons now? What, what is it? Because something has driven them to the point where they've actually booked some language lessons. There's something they want to be able to do and they can't do or they can't do as well as they'd like to do. And that has to be the starting point, whether it's a, a one-to-one or a group. You find out what people are really there for. And I guess because you've got more freedom to do that because you're dealing with adults. You know, you can't, in, certainly in the English system, it's, it, you can't go into a class of... T- t- 
30 children and find out where they're all at. I mean, that's the idea. With a language class, you could actually probably talk to them and find out if there's mistakes they're all making. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not a teacher in the sense that my family are teachers, but I'm kind of working in the training field and there's no denying the fact that I've kind of got into the same career path despite my intention. Well, this is how I feel a little bit. You know, I'm working with children and I'm teaching them how, you know, reading stories to them and developing their literacy. And And I was only going to do this for three years, but now I've done it for much, much longer than I did social work or anything else. So... Well, that's how it always goes. You know, um, you you get into a job. Yeah. And then you you stay in it. I guess the other sort of area of your life that I was interested in you talking about, although I think you're not so... You don't think it'll be that interesting about it, uh, is your vegetarianism. Because... Well, how? Did, why did you become a I vegetarian? actually remember a time when you were a vegetarian, I was, Dave. I was, I was, yeah? I was. I was I and was. so was Tony, and so was Joe. Everyone I think even phase. Dad might have been, you know. So, yeah, I remember so, Dad being a vegetarian for a Maybe the reason I stuck with it was because I actually really never enjoyed meat in the first place. That was a part of it, definitely, was that the, the meal that revolved around a piece of meat and some vegetables was never really one that appealed to me very much. But I think... I was kind of interested in cooking, but what really disgusted me was the meaty part. I, I didn't really like preparing meat, so I would mm. quite enjoy cooking something else. Um, I mean, when I became vegetarian in the 1980s, it was... It, you remember a show called The Young Ones? I do. And the, 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 the character played by Nigel Plain. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there was this kind of image that vegetarians were, were hippies and they ate lentils, and that, that was about it. Largely, I think, promoted by that show, but probably a reflection of... of what was around at the time anyway. So I think it wasn't a, a, a kind of a positive choice to be making unless you were into the, the, the kind of the hippie thing anyway. I had friends who were vegetarian, but I don't think... I think what really... The one thing that maybe I remember standing out was when I was doing A-level biology. I mean, we're going back now, but I can't remember quite why we were, we were on to to farming and, and I think it might have been food chains but there was some topic we covered and the statistic was presented that you can generate 10 times as much high quality vegetable protein from the same acreage of land as you can generate meat protein so for the same acreage of land you could make 10 times as much vegetable protein as meat. And it, to me, it just occurred to me that, that as so much of the world didn't have enough to eat, this was perhaps a very responsible way to go. I think that's a, I mean, I, I think that's a fair point. Um, you add to that the fact that I didn't particularly enjoy meat um, and that when I was a student, I didn't really have very much money. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a And I didn't like cooking the stuff. <laughs> I think you can probably see how it happened. So you've just bleached. Yeah, that, that's Do not you want me, me to say that no, again? No, no, no. no? It's, uh, that's it's just telling me tape. that the time's over. Yeah, yeah it's <laughs> going to be on the tape. Um, they're not telling me that the time's over, actually. It's just, it, it was telling me that there's 10 now. minutes. No, you can no. keep talking. There's 10 minutes. There's 10 minutes to go. Are you going to edit it anyway? I will. I mean, nowadays, actually, the one the, the statistic that, that hits me now much more is the, the carbon footprint. Mm. That the, the, the one stake is the same as 70 kilometres in a car. Now, I drive a car, so maybe to compensate for that, I haven't been eating steaks for all these years. <laughs> and so maybe I feel like that I'm somehow balancing my lifestyle well I think that's a fair point I mean I'm I'm not really against vegetarianism really I'm just not 
I like meat a lot. But I, I mean, think I, this is it because when people say to me, "Why are you vegetarian?" I just say something really stupid. Say, so, "Well, because I don't eat meat." Because it, <laughs> to actually kind of go through the whole thing of animal cruelty. Well, I mean, the information is out there. There is. Well. There's this. That that's not. That's an element of it. Of course, it's an element of it. But I don't really feel that I need to sit down when I'm at a table and mm. people are eating and start discussing animal cruelty. No. It's not. I, it's a it's a silly question in a way. Um, You're not a proselytizer of it anymore, anyway. I don't know if you ever were really. I don't really remember when you were because you were quite, you were quite you were slightly a politi- you you were a, you were an activist for a while to a certain extent. I was, around no, I was it, vegan. I was vegan. I wouldn't say I was necessarily that active. Yeah, like, it's good to be vegan, but it's actually very difficult to live in in the world and ever eat anywhere other than your own home if you're vegan. Oh, to yeah, be honest, it's, up cheese, it's a bit so yeah, but it's a bit limiting in terms of ever eating in someone else's house or yeah. a restaurant or traveling. Traveling was particularly difficult. I mean, some countries I've travelled to, it's quite hard to really explain yourself as a vegetarian in a country where meat's pretty scarce and pretty expensive and they think that, that you, you know that this is really something quite good it's, it's on offer yeah, it's just... and then here in Germany you know sometimes it's it's met with puzzlement it's not as common as in England to be vegetarian but having said that there's some fantastic products out there really nice really nice vegetarian stuff which I would miss if I ever left Germany I would really miss some of these well I've been eating vegetarian things. all week and, it, and, and I've, yeah. I've, I've enjoyed it but I'm going to go home and still eat meat but it's one of those things I think sometimes I think the amount of different meats I eat one day is pretty insane compared to how much meat say dad had in when he was a child they'd have had one roast a week and I, I'm you know I'm having well, this five is, animals a day I don't want to sort of say this factory is, farming is yeah. to make it cheap isn't it and if it's cheap then you can afford we do try and buy organic to buy it that's expensive but yeah yeah but it's still I think maybe it's just it's expensive but it's not it's expensive within the context of quite a wealthy country exactly you know, that's fair where the staple diet does tend to be meat every day and if I was if we were buying organic well we do buy organic meat but if we were only buying a organic joint a week like dad would have had when he was a child then our carbon footprint and all of these things would be better and we wouldn't have been spending so much money because we would spend the rest on vegetables or whatever I mean I think there's probably a lot that could be said and certainly I think when we look to the future vegetarians may point to some solutions hopefully to where we can consume less and still be happy maybe I don't know I've got friends who are going to mock me for that statement I know that you'll all be eating meat substitutes (laughs) (laughs) that's right because they'll be cheaper and healthier I always remember the last time I was here in Germany accidentally revealing to the your children that I was wearing a leather jacket and they were sort of shocked that I was wearing an animal I felt very guilty but uh, yeah I hadn't, I hadn't ever thought any you know hadn't even really considered it was an animal until that so I guess that was educating me in some ways so I think you know stupidly my alarm went off unexpectedly and it sort of cut the time and I, when I was stopping it, it stopped the time. But uh, I think, you know, that sort of really covered a lot of the areas that I was interested in talking about. Uh, I hope it hasn't been too annoying for you. Is there anything that you feel you'd want to sort of... I don't think so. <laughs> I 
don't think so. Um, no, I mean, I'm sure I could put lots of anecdotes about your childhood, in, but you know, you, you would edit out any. Well, no, <laughs> I, I certainly wouldn't. I certainly wouldn't. Anic- Go on then. Right, what's, a, what's a good anecdote? Anecdotes about your childhood, Dave. Um, no, I'm not sure there are. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> wasn't that interesting a child? Maybe. Funny things you did when you were a kid. <laughs> Running up to complete stranger in the cinema queue and kissing them was quite funny. I think you were about four at the time. <laughs> Setting go- monster traps to go out shopping. You were very, you were very imaginative as a child. I remember quite seriously. You said, "No, we can't go out to the shops yet because I haven't finished building the monster trap." <laughs> Well, did I kiss this stranger accidentally, or was it sort of? I just thought. No, I, I think you were just kind of friendly, really. Okay. You're one of those kids. <laughs> yeah, I've met those kids. Yeah, I've met kids like that. They're sweet. But um, you threw up in the taxi going to school one day. I don't think people need to know. No, that, well, they? I don't think. So. I mean, I'm, I'm not. I'm not ashamed of going up in a taxi when I was a kid. But yeah. So I think it sounds like I've lucked out there in terms of the anecdotes. <laughs> Tony will have better ones, much better ones. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> well, yeah, um, yeah. Maybe I'll, I'll have to remember to give him a whole slot on the uh, on, <laughs> on, on, uh, embarrassing anecdotes about me. I'm sure it would be uh, be good for my character to, to listen to them. At, at this stage, I'm asking people just before I end the interviews if they've got anything they want to, to plug. But uh, that's not always going to be appropriate to everybody. But some people might have projects. Or some Clive chose actually, which is interesting, he chose a charity when he did his. So, I mean, it could be something somebody else's to promote. I'm not big on plugging stuff, to be honest. I, I tend to let people find their way to things rather than... I mean, yeah, if there's something very special going on, I might mention it. But generally, I'm not going to plug for the sake of plugging. No, I think that's a great answer. I hope a lot of people give me that answer. But I want to give people the opportunity to use this as a springboard or, you know, get as much out of this experience as they can. So I their stuff is good. I know I would probably have a list while long. Well, thank you very much. This has been, been nice. I look forward to hearing it. And yeah. Rest. Cool. Well, goodbye. Shall I press the off button? You can. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter, at GBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook, it's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website, www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk. You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted. If you're enjoying getting better acquainted with me and with my guests, maybe you'd like to help other people find out about the show. There's a few easy ways to do that. You can go on iTunes if you've got five minutes and leave a review saying what you think of it. That helps it get higher rankings on iTunes and stuff like that. What the show really needs is word of mouth. And in this internet age, that means liking the show's page on Facebook or retweeting it or sharing the link to all of your Facebook friends or Twitter followers, doing whatever you need to do in whatever social networking site you use. And if you don't use a social networking site, well, hey, you can just tell your friends or email your friends and tell them about what's going on. So, okay, so we've sort of discussed um, where you're at in terms of your experience of Germany and the UK. Um, So maybe 
um, we were talking earlier on um, about the idea of talking about uh, you, your strange journey, I think you said from someone who didn't want to be a teacher to someone who is a teacher, <laughs> your strange career. Dave, would you like to put that question again? Okay. It's very rambly. I'll try again. 